This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. We're here with uh, Mike Bernard again for another episode of Cleantech Talk. Mike is one of our regular uh, guests and also going to be a co-host on some episodes, so you should be very familiar with Mike, Mike, Mike's voice by the end of uh, by the end of the quarter, by the end of the year. Uh, today we're talking about the U.S. political uh, situation, not not on the on the lunatic side, but on the sane person side. We're just basically talking about the Democratic primaries and um, the different climate and energy policies and and messaging of top candidates. Uh, if you haven't seen them by now, uh, Mike's done a tremendous series of articles on the climate and energy plans. Poli- plans of, of candidates, uh, really the best dives I've seen, um, and I think uh, very useful going forward as, as, as winners are chosen and as we move, as we move into the, you know, the, the later stages of the primaries and as, um, as a nominee is eventually selected, I think it's going to be really useful to, to, to see these evaluations and see what the final candidates can work into their, their plans. So, Mike, I'll let you take it from here about, you know, what you uh, basically what your what's your overview opinion of these uh, comparisons you've done, these, these deep, deep dives you've done and how you've compared them in the end. Yeah, thanks, Zach. It's uh, kind of good to be back on the, on the podcast. It's really interesting digging into the candidates plans. I mean, uh, it's, you know, October 11th today. In 10 days, Canada goes to our federal election. And climate change is huge. It's the centerpiece of the most likely winner's policy around climate uh, action. We've got multiple parties who care deeply about it. Um, and it's a significant factor in our election, as it will be in 2020 in November next year uh, in the United States. You know, right now we're seeing, as we look at, uh, as we look at the candidates for the Democratic policies, but as also as we look at polling, we see that it's going to be um, a swing issue in the United States election uh, for the president and for many key ridings. You know, just to foreground, right now I see Florida as a potential strong swing state. Uh, the 29 electoral college votes in Florida uh, may hinge upon climate action plans. Um, and there's some interesting pieces around how that works politically in terms of who gets elected if they have better and worse plans, which is promising. I read a study just the other day on that, so we'll get into that. But, you know, let's, let's talk about this shit. I mean, that's a really fascinating topic. I, I, you know, live in Florida. I'm from Florida. One of the most ridiculous, crazy Congress people is Matt Gates from Central yeah. Florida. He's really like, he's, he's way the frig out there. He's one of the, the top right fringe what right wingers and apparently i was it your article or somewhere else that i saw that he's actually says you have to that this is a real issue and have to take it seriously and it, that yeah. shocked me i was it blew my mind but it shows how florida is really a different place uh than a lot of the country with this and you also have a situation like miami where waters ocean waters bubble, you know coming up over the surface of the road and it's, it's not a problem that you just cannot fix because of our porous uh, uh because of the, the ground being so porous and what the you know there's no block no, no way to block it so i i think it's a real it's really fascinating to, so I'm, I'm i'm i didn't know what you just said about you know this being an important uh, topic for swing voters, but um, it will be interesting to see. Do you think any Democrats are really messaging well enough right now where they can make that a, 
a topic where they, you know, they can win the swing voters, they can win the, the, the independents on that topic because they're messaging it really well. Well, let me pull out all the pieces because there's a Venn diagram which explains that intersection point in Florida. First of all, Monmouth University did some polling in uh, November of 2018, so close to a year ago. Um, And that's two years before the 2020 federal election in the United States. So there's two more years of progress to think about. In the preceding four years, Um, Voters across all parties had shifted substantially in their acceptance that climate change was occurring, that humans were partially or wholly responsible for it, and that it was serious or very serious, and that they wanted governmental action. Monmouth University polling found 69% of U.S. voters want the government to address the human causes of climate change. That's 69%. That's quite a substantial number. Um, Only 13% of Republicans accept that um, it's wholly caused by humans, which is what the science says, but that doesn't mean that they don't accept that humans aren't partially to cause or that it's not serious. But there's another piece of the Venn diagram. Um, So actually, let's talk one more point out of the Monmouth University thing, that's serious or very serious, those numbers increased the closer you got to the coastlines among Republican voters, right? And Florida is ground zero for climate impacts. You mentioned the Miami uh, clear sky flooding that's occurring on king tides. It's now schedulable that you can wander around specific neighborhoods and know that you're gonna be walking in salt water. Um, that's simply because a tourist attraction, you know, it could be, I'm sure somebody's trying to make money off of it. <laughs> they will soon if they have it. This is Florida. <laughs> it's Florida. Uh, when I lived uh, in uh, Tampa for a few months, uh, I realized that real estate was a blood sport in Florida. It is not the same as the rest of the world. Um, the, um, although actually I think there's a Polish connection here. You remember the movie series, red, white, and blue? with Juliette Binoche. Uh, I do not. One of them was set in Poland. A, a... Oh, my parents loved this movie. I... Oh, <laughs> oh, I oh like... gosh. No, no, I, I'm sorry, but, but uh, I don't think I've watched it since as an adult. Uh... So one of the uh, characters um, who uh, is in it ends up being a land baron in Poland, I believe. Um, and it's a bit of a blood sport there as well. So perhaps it's Florida and, po- and Poland. You're not the only connection between the two. Um, but the, um, the pieces about Florida is that it's the ground, ground zero for hurricanes in the United States that people actually think are part of the United States. Um, it's actually one of the states as opposed to a protectorate or a territory. And so it's treated more seriously when things happen to it. It went completely over the head of our right wing. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we might have some actual, you know, Republicans who are not, not off the deep end listing. So, we, <laughs> uh, but obviously we have this problem with Trump not recognizing uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, we also, did you know that, um, have you ever heard of a category five before? Did you know that there's category five hurricanes? <laughs> this is just mind blowing, you know? Never heard of one before. 
Yeah. Well, there's two or three things that are interesting about the hurricanes. But, but actually, you know, that's a joke on Trump because he said that repeatedly uh, yep. on multiple different Category 5s. But there's actually a question, too. You, you, I don't know if you want to get into it, but about Category 6, whether there's... Sure. Whether we need I've, I've spent six. a lot of time on this. Um, the, so the, the categories come from the Saffir-Simpson scale. It's um, gone back and forth. Originally, it was proposed to actually have storm surge in it as well, which is one of the highest impact things. It was removed um, partway through its lifespan. It's only been around since the 60s or so because what the categories do is they have emotional, evocative, simple explanation of potential damage to motivate people to evacuate but they're completely inadequate as a characterization of the damage from hurricanes and the potential damage from hurricanes. Uh, if we consider hurricanes um, and global warming, that intersection point, they're made more severe, but it doesn't mean that we get them more frequently, especially in, in the Atlantic. In the Atlantic, we have wind shear conditions which spread the hurricane over a greater distance, cutting off its, its source of power. So the ones that do survive and grow, however, as we see with Superstorm Sandy, which was the largest diameter uh, tropical cyclone in the Atlantic uh, in recorded history, is they're just getting wider, which means that when they make landfall, they hit more land. Um, the most, one of the most destructive hurricanes in the 20s, the one that took out Galveston, I think it was, um, that one was a very small hurricane from a diameter perspective. Basically, it had perfect aim. But now hurricanes are so broad, they don't have to have perfect aim. They can hit a lot of stuff. So that's thing one. Thing two is warmer water, every, what is it, every degree Celsius, you get 3% more water vapor, something like that. And what that water vapor does, it goes up into hurricanes and it drops out of the sky as rain. We saw that with Hurricane Harvey, which just kind of stalled half over the Gulf, half over the Houston area, and just kept dumping more and more rain because it was full from all the, the more water vapor from the higher temperatures. We saw that with um, the hurricane that, oh, which hurricane was it? Came in, then it turned south when it hit the coast and just kind of meandered south, dumping rain all over pig farms and manure ponds. Um, you know, last year, I think it was. Now, that one is the same thing. Increased water vapor. Ir no, no, Irma was uh, the one that came up from the south across. Yeah, that was two years ago. There's too many. You get so many here. Yeah. The, the, the third thing that's important to note is that the increased diameter increases the amount of rain that can be, the water that can be sucked up into it as vapor and drop as rain as well. So you end up with a greater region of flooding from the same hurricane simply because it's a wider diameter. But then you have the additive impact of more water being sucked up into it. So wider diameter, more water. Then the last piece that's important is it doesn't matter if we get more of them um, is that greater diameter means greater storm surge, all else being equal. And storm surge is one of the most destructive elements of it. Now, it kills the most people, I think. I think it's the it most. kills the most people. Now, this year we had a, um, a hurricane that came ashore just, what is it, 80 miles to the east of um, New Orleans. Um, and when I looked at that, that one was um, really, New Orleans could have been wiped off the map. 
there were three or four factors that were involved in that. The United States, the eastern United States, has had a year of substantially greater precipitation. That year of substantially greater precipitation means the Miami and all the waterways were up near the top of their levees. So that's statement one. Statement two, if the tide had been high at the time when the hurricane made land and it had hit New Orleans, New Orleans would have been gone. It got missed by 80 miles. That's it. So in 30 years, New Orleans will exist as a theme park in the French Quarter. Yeah, well, I mean, there was a big debate after, uh, what was the... Katrina. Katrina, whether or not to re- rebuild or, or just abandon the, the place. You know, it's, I, I'm not so attached to history sometimes to, you know, I, I think more logical would be to try to relocate, you know, and there's, I mean, they, there's just big areas of the city that still have never recovered, have never... Yep. really serious problems from that still um so it's you know it's, it's it's a difficult choice but i mean this is the this is the really difficult choice we're going to have in more and more places including places like miami which is like you know uh, and and this is where it gets into it we've got the rest of this hurricane season which is drawing to a close but still has potential then we've got all next hurricane season before the federal election um florida could very easily get hit by a very severe hurricane. And the uh, per um, a poorly done survey, but a survey nonetheless, um, they, they assessed what changed climate change deniers' minds. Um, they asked a question and it was a bit open-ended. Yale Climate Communications did an assessment and about 21% of people who had changed their minds, part of it was extreme weather events. You know, people in Florida, there are kind of two types of people I can see in Florida. Well, there's three, there's Florida man, but let's leave him out of it. Um, And the two types of people I consider are the people who haven't lived through a hurricane and the people who have. And the people who have lived through a hurricane, many of them suffer PTSD and are trying to figure out how to get out. If they've been hit hard by a hurricane, they have a very different attitude towards it. Our perception as humans is, oh, that's a risk. It'll happen to somebody else. It's not really a big deal. But when it happens to you and your house is destroyed and your properties are destroyed and you had to evacuate for five days, your perception of the entire thing changes radically. And then that diminishes over time. But with the increase in severity of hurricanes and the increase in diameter, more and more people are going to be in that category. Yeah, so, I was going to ask you earlier if you thought um, that this increasing concern over this topic and, and awareness of it, it was related to more extreme weather events. But also, I, w- I was wondering if it's more that the the weather and the the weather forecasters and the um, the general media started explaining the link better. It started highlighting more that this extreme weather is linked to global warming climate change because i think they have i mean i think there's still still a lot of room for improvement but i think they've gotten that message well there's one really interesting thing that i was reading recently it was a study of changes in attitudes of the american meteorological society towards climate change Um, if we go back a decade ago we could point at um, a lot of meteorologists especially weathermen on tv in 
more conservative areas who are highly dismissive of global, global warming and climate change. The guy who was one of the co-founders of the Weather Network is famously a climate change denier. Now, he's not a meteorologist. He has a degree in journalism, an undergraduate degree in journalism. So he's not a professional weather forecaster in that sense of him being somebody who studies the science of it. He's a guy who built an empire based upon other people doing that. Um, but he's a businessman, and in his case, he just denied the climate change. He was well. There's, well, there's also an, I, I saw you know, several years ago when I covered this that weather forecasters, you know, they deal with the weather, which is very different from the climate. The weather is extremely hard to predict. The weather is very, you know, fluctuates from hour to hour. You don't know, you know, climate's a lot different. It's a lot easier to predict. It's a lot more stable long term. You know, it's changing though. It's changing though. There's something really interesting that's going on. So part of my background is I spent a fair amount of time with the people in IBM. But who, just, uh, real quick, so I mean, the point with that was that the forecasters would be skeptical of being able to predict the climate because they saw how unpredictable the weather was. So that's why there was considered to be a lot of. But it's skepticism. changing though. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, this was years ago. But I mean, years ago. Yeah. Now. If we go back years ago, what people used to do was they used to get weather information. They get barometric charts. And many old weather people would do the weather forecast themselves. They do a micro forecast for their region. And they would do that based upon farmer's almanac and history and what the climate had typically been and deviation from the historical norm for the season. Now, what's occurred since then is we have things like, you know, um, uh, IBM actually now owns one of the biggest and most sophisticated weather forecasting solutions in the world. It has a global model of the entire atmosphere, and it's doing predictive predictions um, of every place on the earth where there are people, basically, and any place anybody wants to pay them for, for what the weather is going to be in whatever increments you want. And we can see that with uh, animals out of Europe as well. We can see that with the NOAA. Now weather people are even more people who just read what the computers tell them and interpret it for the people in their broadcast area. Um, anybody, the old style weather people who actually used to do the weather themselves before the forecast, the ones who were there, they're superseded. And so two or three things that are going on. I mean, to your point, that's the old school weather versus the new school weather. The new school weather is all supercomputers churning climate models. And we're starting to see a real extension of the ability to forecast with a high degree of accuracy. There's a, a recent study that came out which found that our 10-day forecasts are now as accurate as our five-day forecasts were. Um, secondarily, the polar vortex was... The, the temperatures in the polar vortex this winter in the uh, eastern United States were predicted six weeks in advance because of the behavior of the jet stream, which causes the polar vortex cold. Um, that's a weather forecast that was fundamentally accurate four to six weeks in advance. That's really wild. Yeah. <laughs> so. A lot of this is the people in the, in the meteorological societies are starting to realize that it is, A, a historical perspective no longer works. So their old methods no longer work because the climate is transforming. I actually had a hypothesis that it was getting harder to predict the weather 
because we couldn't use historical baselines. But it turns out to be the inverse. All the climate modeling that we do is increasing our predictive accuracy for the weather as well. And we're starting to see a convergence of some of these models where they overlap a little bit so we can actually get that. I mean, let's just go back to hurricanes briefly. Um, a lot fewer people die in hurricanes than they used to. That's not because the hurricanes are smaller or less destructive. It means it's because we actually have much better predictive capabilities, Sharpies or not, about where the hurricanes are going to go. <laughs> Would you like to say something, Zai? I somehow did not even, I don't know how that didn't come into my mind until you mentioned it. <laughs> That's just one of the most ridiculous things ever. I mean, it's like, uh, he didn't even, he didn't even draw a circle that matched the pattern. I mean, it was like, he couldn't even put a proper like extension of the graph on there. It was so bad. He's it was a pimple. Sharpies for having his own, you know, having Sharpies for everything. It's just like, it was so absurd. On this flip side, that seemed funny. But when you have someone who had this, the really weird sense to do that and the need to like prove he was right over some brain fart, you know, it's just really concerning when you think about something like the situation now with, with Syria, Turkey and, and other matters, you know, mm -hmm. if he's going to do that over a stupid brain fart over the, over, you know, what states are, uh, are still un under threat. I mean, what's he going to do? in other situations. So it gets really, well, it's really concerning, but let's, let's get away. But yeah. pertinent to our topic though. Yeah. Um, okay. We can move to the, no, no, we'll just take the, we'll yeah. pull that thread just a little bit more because the Sharpie was one thing. Him claiming the national weather service was wrong is worse because they're the ones who issue the hurricane warnings that get people out of harm's way. The National Weather Service was right. They were accurate. They were telling it clearly. And when they responded to his tweet, they were doing it in the interest of the safety of American citizens. Yeah, and then when they, he... They clarified that they did it not to like piss him off, but because they kept getting... Uh, people were calling... A lot of people were calling in about because of the tweet and were concerned about whether or not they needed to evacuate or whatever. In Alabama. So they yeah. were just trying to like help their people. <laughs> That's what they were doing. They did their job. Now, Trump's political um, appointee in the NOAA who overrode, who came out and said the NWS was wrong and that Trump was right, that is actually fundamentally diminishing the United States capacity to deal with weather disasters because the citizens of the United States distrust in many cases now the National Weather Service that, that is there to keep them safe. And it's also illegal for, for a weather forecasting agency or I'm not sure the term uh, to to lie about the weather so this this was actually a, a yet another illegal act um, just to protect Trump's ego or whatever yeah the, the the thread to pull through that though is imagine next year at the beginning of the hurricane season in August in Florida a bunch of people who you know are on the Trump scale of the spectrum um, hear the National Weather Service say well there's a Category, it's going to be a Category 4, and it's going to land in Jacksonville, and everybody inland of Jacksonville needs to evacuate. And many of them don't, because Trump has, and his NOAA uh, appointee, have denigrated the, um, have diminished the trust in the National Weather Service. Now, and then they, you end up with 
20 or 100 people who die because they refuse to evacuate and it happens to be a more severe form of um, more severe flooding, more severe storm surge, that's going to change a lot of minds. Um, and it's, it's a very predictable outcome of some of the behaviors we're seeing. So I certainly don't want that. You know, this is just a horrific projection, but it's entirely possible within the context of what we're seeing out of the United States in terms of some of the yeah, politics. No, I mean, my, my first inclination, oh, that's ridiculous. Nobody's going to doubt the National Weather Service just because of Trump's tweets. And then you think, oh, wait, but there's people who think Trump is right about everything. Uh, and I mean, it's really, it's really hard to get your mind around what world these people live in. But uh, yeah, so... so Back I to the saying, 2020, yeah. As you're saying, this could become... Uh, yeah, so maybe... Maybe, I don't know if you want to start with the general or just go into the, the Democrats, how this could be a kind of influential topic for them. Well, let, me, uh, let me finish with Florida because there's a couple more points in the Venn diagram which are important. Okay, yeah. Um, first off, so we, we talked about Monmouth University. We talked about the increasing severity of uh, climate change. Um, the impacts in the Biscayne Aquifer are not going to be starting to be really noticeable in probably until 2040, so they're not going to be a factor in... Um, the elections. We're already seeing people in the Florida Keys who are waiting for federal or state assistance to relocate because their properties are damaged. That was a recent story. Um, but the next piece of the thread is, as you, you pointed out, Gates, um, G-A-E-T-Z, Matt Gates. He's, as you say, it's a fairly hard right kind of Tea Party kind of Republican. Yeah, really hard right. I mean, he's really, I mean, there's like maybe three or four of them in that as that are like as far right as him. <laughs> um, but he's not alone. There's um, other state representatives in Florida who are also clearly asserting climate change is real. It's occurring. And we go up the, go, go up the coast yeah, a couple of... You have, I mean, this is a really important matter for certain. I mean, we had the Congressman uh, Curbelo in, uh, in the south southwest uh, area, southeast area of, of Florida, Miami-Dade County area. Uh, he was a Republican congressman who was quite strong. I mean, as, as strong as a Republican can be on this issue, I think. He tried to have, he tried to, you know, some of these efforts in Congress to have bipartisan um, movement on this topic he, yep. was, he was a big part of um, and it's it's clear yeah, the like, climate solutions caucus which uh, right <laughs> your memory is better than me mine on that and uh, and he's also just um, I don't I mean you never know with a politician how much they're talking from their heart versus how much they're focused on political messaging but you get the impression that it's got to be a really important issue for people in his area it's got to be like Okay, it's, it's something he cares about, but it's also obviously something that polling shows he has to care about. And this is where I'm pulling the, the next thread, because Lindsey Graham, let's go with Lindsey Graham, a couple of, a couple of uh, uh, states up in um, South Carolina, uh, the other side of Georgia, and he's come out publicly and saying Trump has to accept climate change. And he's tired of being on the defensive about the science. Um, now, as we start pulling these threads, there's the clear statement of the presidency versus local races. In local races, people like Gates and the, the other gentleman you mentioned know that they have to be on side or their constituents will say, you're full of crap. They can play the local versus federal game, but Trump can't. So Trump 
can only play the federal game. The locals can protect themselves in their local races by accepting climate change. But if Trump doesn't accept climate change, Florida gets hit by a hurricane again and again and again, more clear sky flooding in Florida, et cetera. And we start seeing that Florida's 29 electoral college votes in 2020 are at risk. And Florida is always a swing state. It's always, I mean, what was it? Uh, one, it was one, one year by 50.1%. 0.1% and all 29 electoral votes went to um, the other side. Yeah, I mean, you have a crazy, I mean, just the situation with the governor last time, um, you know, DeSantis versus, uh, God, I had his bumper sticker on my car. <laughs> <laughs> what is his name, right? Uh, I will think of it in a second. But uh, the Democratic candidate who I love, who I had a bumper sticker on my car for, who really, uh, I don't know why I'm having this brain fart. All polling before the election showed him winning. All polling, apparently. And DeSantis barely beat him in the election i don't you know who knows how uh, yep. but, <laughs> but he really like inched out it was one of the like one of the election one of the camp the races that ended up being called towards towards the end it, it, it just shows but but also that curbello who i mentioned he he's not in congress anymore a democrat took his seat yep. so now so he's one of those congressmen who basically got knocked out from Republicans going too far off the right deep end. Um, yeah. Well, there's something really is interesting uh, about the 2018 midterms, the Climate Solution Caucus, which we were talking about, used to be a fairly big body. It had like 88 members, 44 Republicans, 44 Democrats. It's uh, set up specifically to only have, allow a pair of congressmen in. Um, so you have to have a Democrat, Democratic congressman and a Republican congressman both joining at the same time. But the midterms knocked so many Republicans out that the Climate Solutions Caucus shrank to 48, four people or something like that. You know, yeah, so it's, it's just... basically nothing now. And, and that, that was Andrew Gillum, so just... That. Andrew Gillum. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely love this guy, really good. He was, he, he was the mayor of, mayor of Tallahassee, uh, did great stuff with renewable energy. Um, I was quite uh, hopeful that he might run for president, but, you know, we had enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> keep, keep going. So... Federally, every year for the past, since, oh God, um, I think it was the beginning of the, the first Clinton administration. If you win Florida, you win the presidency. If you don't win Florida, you don't win the presidency. It's, uh, in, the vast majority of states have this silly thing where it doesn't matter. The electoral college votes all go one way or the other. I think there's only two states that are actually sensible. Like in Canada, we have 338 ridings and they don't get amalgamated into blocks. They each individually elect. That's the way it works here. Um, by comparison, the United States has the Electoral College, which amalgamates all the votes for a state for 48 of the 50 states. And Florida's like that. So in 2020, it's uh, 29 Electoral College votes because Florida's population has been increasing, it's slowly inching up. Apparently after 2020, it'll go up to 31 electoral college votes. So it's just becoming a more and more important state. So we look at that and we say, if they lose Florida, Trump loses or whoever the candidate is, loses the election. And we can also look at another big state that's coastal, Texas. Texas is a really interesting case in point. Um, Beto almost took, um, Took Texas. Ted Cruz. 
yeah. incarnate as some of his Republican colleagues called, called, called him. Uh, seriously, that was a co- yep. Republican congressman who called him the devil incarnate. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, no. So he, he had a sort of case. You, you, it might, you might think he had a case of he's so disliked that that's why Beto almost won. But actually in Texas, he's quite popular. And, it, and he was one of the last presidential candidates. So he's not, although his colleagues seem to hate him, um, he, he's very quite... He's quite popular with voters, so uh, so yeah. You had this really strange. I mean, apparently for decades, you, people have been talking about the potential of flipping Texas. But yeah. I, I think what you're getting to is how how much more likely that's getting. Yeah, and it, right, right now, I mean, I'm not the only person saying this by any stretch of the imagination. I've done a lot of analysis of Florida simply because it's such a fascinating outlier geographically and meteorologically. And I've spent a lot of time thinking through the implications of hurricanes and stuff like that. But, you know, Houston got Harvey. This year it got almost as much flooding as during Harvey because of the same factors which led to the Mississippi being near the top of its banks. Lots of rain for the entire year so everything was full and then more rain over a period of time over a large period of time which just drenched the place and now they're suffering massive flooding again um, two years apart it's there's this other interesting aspect about texas when i talk about renewable energy and grid reliability and the price of electricity i call it a few examples every single time like one of them is germany you know, people say, well, the price of electricity is really high because of the energy vendor. And I say, well, no, the wholesale price of electricity, even the World Nuclear Association agrees with this, the wholesale price is actually among the lowest in Europe. The retail consumer price is high to drive efficiencies and to promote the use of local renewable energy, of opening your window when it's nice as opposed to keeping your air conditioning on, you know, putting on a sweater instead of turning on the heat, yeah, those Craig, types of things. Craig, Craig Morris has done a great job of covering yeah. that, that market for years. And he, he said that's a policy, policy decision. It's a policy yeah. decision to encourage efficiency. That's not, um, not, and as you highlight really well, the wholesale price for electricity in Germany is really low. But then we take the next thing, grid reliability. It's like there's attack points, right? You, you know the attack points as well as I do. Wind and solar are going to make the grid unreliable. Well, Germany and Denmark, to the north, have 15 minutes per customer per year of grid downtime. United States, it's closer to four hours. Now, let's take... And that's not counting California right now. (laughs) That's not counting California. But let's take um, Texas again. Texas has gone from 6% to 20% wind and solar, mostly wind right now, um, since 2009. So a decade of massive expansion of renewables in terms of their annual demand. Um, In that same period of time, they've gone from dead last in terms of grid reliability to 34th among the U.S. states in grid reliability. And they've remained the same, uh, same low rates by United States. I think they're ninth cheapest electricity by state in the United States. And they've just stayed there. So renewables aren't making the grid more, the electricity more expensive. There is empirically, it's a correlation, not a causation. But the correlation is very strong. Places with more renewables have more reliable grids. Um, you know, so you kind of look at that and you go, wait, well, you know, that's interesting. When you look at Trump's rhetoric, Trump's rhetoric about 
wind turbines and wind farms is falling on deaf ears in the Texas panhandle because they know better. You know, it's, there, there are things which trigger you to question um, whether somebody is telling you the truth or not, even someone like Trump. Many Trump supporters have personal knowledge of wind energy in uh, red states. And when he says wind turbines cause cancer or they don't work, they kind of look out the window and go, Martha, do you have cancer? I don't have cancer. Um, Because they know better. And in Texas, they know that it's a good source of electricity. It's cheap. It works. And they're not having a problem with it. You know, it's, it's a very different set of behaviors around that. And once again, Houston hitting that. So we have a couple of swing states with lots and lots of votes for the 2020 election. So let's get to Lindsey Graham saying Trump has to accept this. And then we'll get to the Democratic stuff because there's a really interesting dynamic. The study that somebody pointed out to me recently said, if two parties both accept the same facts and one has a moderate approach and one has a more radical approach, in elections in Western democracies, the one with the more radical approach tends to win. And what that means is that if Trump comes out, because my big concern before reading this report and still, imagine something like this. Trump, Trump says, um, you know, in February, yeah, climate change is real. I, I always said that. What do you mean I said about China being a hoax? No, that was just... I was just being fun. That was just a joke. Don't you understand jokes? I'm the greatest. Kofefi. Um, and you, know, you sit there and you say, you could see him flipping, pretending he'd always accepted climate change. But what would the Republican response be? It would probably be adaptation. And it would probably be a much less interesting plan than Joe Biden's, who's got the weakest of the front runners. And so you start sitting there and then all of a sudden you've got a situation where there's a whole bunch of people, 69% of the populace of the United States who want governmental action. And you've got a lot of people who want, who consider it really serious. Now here's where we get into the differentiation because this leads directly into the, the strategies of the democratic candidates and some strong differentiators. Pew Research does annual polling in terms of people who identify as Republican or Democratic or Independent. What's happened since 2004 is the number of Independents has increased, mostly at the expense of Republicans. Um, You know, it's down to 26% as of the last polling that I saw who are committed Republicans. Then there's another 13% of independents who say they're independent, but almost always vote Republican. So that's 39%. And there's 7% who are really independent. They actually- I mean, that's, that's basically Trump's floor. Like that's, uh, that's been his, I mean, his, yeah, he's, he's, he's seldom gone below that. And I mean, I just sort of assume most, you know, the majority, the big majority of these, watch Fox News a lot and that sort of shapes their 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 opinions on on politicians and people but uh, but who knows uh, but yeah yeah keep keep going so then seven percent are truly independent they go back and forth but then we get into the other side of it we get thirty percent 
are committed Democratic voters, and another 18% are independents who lean Democratic and almost always vote Democratic. So that's 48% to 39%. With 7% of true swing voters, which is a small amount, but then we have the Trump factor because there's a bunch of never Trumpers who are ex-Republicans, very influential and powerful people who voted for Hillary Clinton. George Will, Joe Scarborough, David Frum. I mean, David Frum wrote the Axis of Evil speech for George W. Bush, and he voted for Clinton. <laughs> you know, these are... There's, and there's sort of a growing number of them. I mean, some, some of them have been... Uh critical but not but then would vote for trump anyway um and one thing after another they've decided that just can't be this i think george will said the other day that um any republican who doesn't stand up against trump should be voted out of office that's just a wild statement from george i mean from george will but i mean that's how much they see him as a threat to our country yeah keep keep going i I was i was going to get into some other topics but wait till yeah the bigger point here is that the committed republicans you know, the 30, the, that 26%, it doesn't matter what they believe. They're going to vote for the Republicans. The 13% of independent voters who mostly vote Republican are open territory. They're dominantly, rur- dominantly suburban and rural voters. Oh, oh and one, one thing I was, so <laughs> you mentioned that 48 and 39 and it makes it seem lopsided. In actuality, no Republican presidential candidate has won the popular vote since George H.W. Bush before Clinton. Yep. Uh, you know, George, oh, well, uh, sorry, George W. Bush won on his re-election with the popular vote. Yep. You know, this was a unique situation with the war. But he lost to Gore on popular vote. Trump lost uh, to Clinton on the popular vote. And the, and the spread keeps getting wider. And, uh, you know, the, obviously after Obama, there was this, you know, this kind of re- Republican that, hey, we need to get together and we need to change the party to be more welcoming to these, these groups that are not, uh, you know, heavily Democrat. And Trump came in and blew that whole thing up. I mean, he came in and just blew up their, their game plan, which has pissed off a lot of Republicans who really see the party as under threat. But there's, I, I saw a really interesting thread on Twitter about this, and I'm going to write an article or two about it. A lot of this insanity we see with Trump and the Republican Party and with, with things like the Kavanaugh hearing, it's it's a party that's on its deathbed, and they're like doing everything to cling to power. They're like, oh, you know, or you could use a different metaphor. They're just basically they're so far outside of what the general population wants and it's so hard for them to win elections that they cheat with elections yep. they cheat with the senate they cheat with the supreme court blocking a supreme court nominee rightfully presented by obama they cheat with this that or the other they overlook trump cheating in one way or another so they've they look like it's like what is going on this doesn't make any sense but it makes yeah. sense from the perspective of the parties just that far it's it's that hard for the party to win without cheating that they have decided that it's better for them to cheat and win sometimes than lose all the time. Yes. Uh, but any but anyway, it gets yeah, obviously the topic we're talking about today is just another topic where they get pushed further and further away from where the population of the country is because well, they, they yeah. stick to the fossil fuel talking points instead of what's obvious to Americans. I just want to look up one thing here, the number. Actually, I'll just talk about it a bit. The, um, 
It's another factor in the Venn diagram for Florida. There's a, a legal fight underway to enfranchise um, felons who have served their sentences. That's a state-by-state -state decision. There's well over 100,000 people in Florida. And that was a hugely overwhelming vote in favor of that on the last election in Florida. Yep. And the, the people, you know, the, the war on crimes and the war on drugs overwhelmingly impacted communities of color, people of color. Um, and those communities overwhelmingly vote Democratic, you know, for a variety of historical and legacy reasons, you know, won't get into Southern strategy, racism, um, little tiny things like that. But if the felons are, the former felons who served their debt to society are enfranchised in Florida before the 2020 election, that's 100 to 200,000 votes that swing a different way. So that's just another factor that makes Florida but, oh, really vulnerable. What, you know, so that happens, and now I forget how they're working to not make them to, well, yeah, they're, they're, to roll that back. Basically, I was I went to register to DMV registration, and they have these people signing, uh, asking you to sign ballot petitions, and uh, mm -hmm. and so and that's where I learned about that. This is um, they now have a plan to basically try to undo that whole that whole decision even though it was like something like a 70 80 percent vote in favor of 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 it so it's like it just again they're they're trying to undo the will of the people cheat to basically make it a better chance that they're not going to lose florida to, to democrats thank you for listening to clean tech talk Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more clean tech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund clean tech talk.